Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have in the studio Rob Sheffield and Brittany Spanos. And dan, 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 we are going to talk about Britney Spears because somehow the 20th anniversary of Baby One More Time is coming up, the, the single release particularly in, in uh, 1998. And this was an earth-shaking single release. It changed the face of MTV. It changed the sound of popular music. MTV was, at that point, was in the sort of last days of thinking that they were appealing to sort of a, a slightly older alternative rock type audience. And Hanson was was kind of the first hint. Spice Girls were the first hint. And then, you know, Baby One More Time was like a, you know, was like a bulldozer knocking down everything sort of hairy and guitar-y. And suddenly it was a new era. And Rob, what do you remember about both your own personal first encounter with Baby One More Time and then just how it kind of hit the culture like a tidal wave? Well, it was uh, it was Christmas 98 and it was the sort of the hit of Christmas 98, sort of like late in the year when, you know, MTV isn't breaking new Christmas hits, but it's just kind of, you know, unloading like what seemed like, you know, keepers. And Baby One More Time did not look or sound like anything else in pop music. It was so robotic and so alien she looked that way in the video. I remember seeing the video and I said, I can't tell whether this person is 20 or 50. I can tell whether she's like Swiss or Swedish or Icelandic. You know, there's something very Bjorky about her <laughs> delivery. Uh, the sort of like robot alien staccato of it. The, the absolute thing I would have bet everything on was that there was no way she was an all-American girl from Louisiana. That was completely out of the question. Uh, everything about the way she sang and, and the way... You know, the way she appeared in the video seemed like robotic to the point. It, it reminded me very much of a then popular science fiction movie called Species about a, a bit of Martian DNA that lands on Earth and they, they raise it in a bubble and she breaks free and, and raises hell on the West Coast. Basically predicts everything that ever happened in Britney's career. So, but you liked it or no? Uh, at, I liked it very much, but I was like, this is absolutely Absolutely bizarre, unlike anything I'd heard. And it was so different from anything that I'd heard that it, it was hard to say whether it would take off. Compared to this, you know, like the Backstreet Boys and Sync, you know, like they had hits already. And those were straight up mainstream pop compared to this. This was avant alien, like robot freakazoidalism. And one of the many interesting aspects of this song in particular, and I'm sure we'll broaden it out eventually, is this sort of recognition it got pretty quickly for its craft from sort of the indie world and from rock singers, songwriters, you know, like the Adam Schlesingers of the world. Those people kind of immediately realized, and it was Max Martin. Max Martin was far from a household name at that point. But the high estimation that, you know, most people now hold Max as a songwriter was there was an early hint of that. There was a ton of people covering Baby One More Time because she was just, you know, not she, but Max Martin was outriding the rock songwriters, which would become a problem <laughs> for the next, you know, 20 years, I think. Sure, nobody would have seen that as a problem. But, you know, Travis did that, like, and that was like, a you know, always a big hit when Travis did. And Travis were, you know, the archetypal, you know, sincere, earnest, uh, uh, pop band it, it seemed like Travis were going to be the future much more than Britney which is why they could cover the song in, a, in an affectionate way there might have been less affection if if you know they, they saw the next few years coming but nobody was denying that it was like a totally original song with an original sound and that there was something deeply weird and, and unsettling and disturbing about it how do you see it now Brittany I mean 
just even looking back on that era and remembering how much how it was everywhere like I was around six when it came out and so it was just like like everyone in school had it like everyone was listening to it constantly it was on the radio like there was no way to avoid Britney and that entire wave of teen pop and those Max Martin songs that were everywhere just like I don't think I've experienced any other phenomenon like that in my life just like in terms of in real time experiencing this is everywhere at once how do you hear it now though I mean right now it's you can hear Britney's influence literally everywhere just like the way that all the pop stars kind of, like especially female pop stars handle themselves and handle their music and what they want to sound like I think everyone at some point in their career either attempts a Britney an early Britney hit me baby one more time sound and either tries to break away from it or tries to grasp it at some point later in their career we should probably actually hear this song if we could could we do that Uh, to go into the backstory of it a little bit, Rob, you said that you talked to Brittany in 2000 and she told you that she she didn't always want to be a pop star. She had another idea of herself as a performer. Yeah, she wanted to be a singer-songwriter and uh, she wanted to make a record that was more in the, you know, a, a huge record from 1999 that came out that everybody liked was Macy Gray's record. Brittany was like, that was the album I should have made. That's the album I wanted to make. You know, Sheryl Crow. Jill Scott, these were the singer-songwriters that she admired and wanted to, to, to do for her next album. But she did not see Baby One More Time as the essence of her genius. And Max Martin originally wrote, wrote Baby One More Time thinking of TLC. It wasn't just Max. It was a team that included Max. But they were thinking of TLC. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years if you really listen to Britney's delivery on Baby One More Time, is she's doing T-Boz from TLC, like 100%. There's a song, uh, Baby, Baby, Baby by TLC, that we should, uh, we should play, and you maybe can get a vibe for the similarities. But it's interesting thing. I mean, of course, Britney then, her entire vocal delivery and her entire career going forward was in some ways modeled on what she achieved in that song. So the influence of T-Boz here is profound, but let's hear that TLC song if we can. So to me, that is not a subtle thing. Oh yeah. It's, it's incredible really. Uh, but T-Boz told MTV a few years ago that, yeah, you know, that song was presented to them. But, and she, she heard it was a hit, but from her perspective, there was no way she was singing the words, hit me baby one more time. Now, of course, Max Martin, it turns out, it was, people really wonder what, what were they talking about? Was it like, you know, presenting domestic violence as a sign of love or something awful like that? Or was it, it turns out he was, he just had an imperfect grasp of American slang and he was thinking about sort of just like, hit me up, like hit me. And, and so it was meant to be just like, I always assumed that, but it never quite registered. It's by far not the worst lyric that we got from Sweden. I mean, there, there's that. There's a couple of Ariana Grande ones that are just that, in which all sense and grammar just disappear. And I, I Ryan, you're so, implying yeah. that I do not plan on becoming who I truly are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I reject that. Like Britney was the first to become who she truly are, and yes. then many people followed well, in those. Specifically, in terms of the 
Orlando, Sweden, like Nexus, yeah. that like astounding connection, you know, at, at, like as at the time I I always thought of it as Orlando Navian, but there was this like really like like extremely tight pipeline between, you know, the Disney kids of Orlando, uh, a place that had never been a pop bed of of pop music and and you know, the studios of, of Sweden and they had perfected this sort of you know, what became like, you know, the deluge, as you pointed out over the next Mm -hmm. few years. Max Martin and and the people around him, his background, their background was sort of in rock. They were like hair metal guys. And you can kind of hear that. I mean, you can, the the riff of Baby One More Time is essentially kind of like a a heavy metal guitar riff translated to pop. It has that like, that thump and that thunk of it. So that, that's pretty interesting. And in general, Max has a lot of theories about songwriting, about like what what's right and what's wrong. He famously like said that that Lord's Greenlight was incorrect songwriting, which was kind of a compliment. He wasn't insulting, <laughs> it, but but it, but it just you know he he there's something mathematical, and I think that might be what you were perceiving as as robotic at that That's time. A great way to put it. But what about the video? What about the? I mean, the undercurrent of all this was this sort of this presentation of a teenage Britney Spears as a sort of sexual being in a way that would be completely unacceptable in mm-hmm. 2018 people would be freaking out i think uh about a lot of things about the the lead in the uh, rolling stone profile that came the next year which referred to her quote honeyed thighs the whole schoolgirl thing of the video which mm-hmm. was her idea by all accounts but how do you how do you see all that now because that's a really complex thing i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think there were a lot of teenage like actual teenage pop stars of the 90s before britney or at least like to that level of being so massive totally true and i mean i think that playing with that it was interesting to me always just like the idea of both like modesty and the sexuality of her and how she was so accessible on like radio disney and because she was part of this disney camp i think there was a certain line that she can blur and play with and especially she was like she was 17 at the time or 16 or 17 when the song blew up. And so I think there was like a certain level that she could play with and like hit that line harder than anyone else could because she had the Disney past and also the backing from them. And so she was able to kind of play with, I can be sort of sexual, but I'm not going to be fully, you know, too crazy with it. Totally. But but also she saw herself as a pop artist rather than a teen artist mm-hmm. because no, at that point nobody knew that the teen audience was going to be so big. And she thought of herself as making music for adults. And yeah. she she thought nobody would know that she was a teenager and and you know, you can hear that another vocal model that she told me that she said was like her main vocal model in the song was Soft Cells Tainted Love mm-hmm. and that that was the song that she listened to all night before she did this vocal. That was the kind of sound that she was going for which, you know, think of it as, you know, very breathy, decadent, mm-hmm. uh, new wave uh, Brit, but... but someone, someone just figured you out and said it's a, and told her to tell you that just to get you excited. That was <laughs> absolutely <laughs> trolling me, yes. And it worked. What, what, let's listen to Tainted Love for a second to get that uh, vibe. Sometimes I feel I've got to run away I've got to well, the, the sort of nasality of it, I mean, I, there's uh, one of her backup singers on the album recently said that she actually pinched her nose, not Britney, but the backup singer, pinched, literally pinched her nose to try to match the tonality. That, 
And th- that's weird. And then there's also the thing, isn't doesn't Legend also have it that she had a cold the day of, of the recording? Yeah. yeah. She, she, she said that. And she said one of the reasons she stayed up late, like listening to Tainted Love, was because she wanted her voice to sound like she hadn't slept all night. And she wanted <laughs> to get that growly, raspy sound. Her, like the part of Tainted Love, like the way he flattens the notes and the way he sounds really breathy, breathy and, and, and very like, you know, like, oh, please, you know, and very like kind of bratty. <laughs> there's something about that that, but the, the Britney image as we know it hadn't really formed. It was really her next song, Sometimes, which nobody remembers, but that's the one where she became, you know, hi, I'm a teenage girl from America. Mm-hmm. Baby, one more time, she was trying to hide that. She was, you know, I'm a 80-year-old sex cyborg from Sweden, and I am coming <laughs> to destroy your circuitry, America. Yeah, we'll talk about Sometimes a little bit more. Astounding, the yeah. great lost record of the Britney, the Britney canon. Let's hear it if we can. I haven't forgotten it. How can you forget Sometimes? It's a great one. There's a unusual moment at the beginning of this song where she actually pronounces the word me as me instead of meh. <laughs> it's like she forgot her pronunciation, but then I think the second time she, she fixes it. But we were talking about the debut album. You guys, I don't know if you're kidding, you guys were, were uh, supporting a lot of the debut album. I think there's a lot of hilariously bad stuff on the, on the <laughs> debut album. There's, there's a song called Soda Pop that's this sort of reggae thing that is just like... It's it's like from some alternate universe. Let's hear that for a second if you can. <laughs> My favorite sublime song. Absolutely. <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> it cannot be overstated. Sugar Ray was incredibly popular at this time. <laughs> I mean, that's what I kind of love about going back to the album because there is a certain element of it where it's it's such a time capsule of everything that was happening in totally. n- like 98, 99 musically just from across all genres beyond just pop. And so... Right. And they were covering their bases too. They weren't yeah. sure what would hit. So, And I think a song like that, like it is such a specific moment which makes it really delightful to me and also like email my heart which we were talking about before the song. show which you is you do not you do not love that song i do love that song <laughs> it's a boy song. so ahead of its time i know people were just doing emails <laughs> yes she got the very first email my heart song nobody got to that yeah <laughs> let's hear that if we can we missed her aim song but... <laughs> it's a little dream on There's a slight hint of uh, it's been seven hours and sixteen. Totally, days. Absolutely. Like a, yep. a, yeah. Just a little bit of nothing compares to you in there. But also note this: a scenario, none of it has changed. Like yeah. you know, the whole thing of like I'm sitting here refreshing my screen. Why won't you like? I, I was like, wow, that's that was very prophetic to say the least. Not limited to teenagers anymore. That's for sure. <laughs> But she uh, she was tethered to a to a to a desktop, so that's the problem. Yeah. But it, uh, I don't think it comes up in the 
it, it doesn't come up on the in, in the song. The song is not it's very last, specific. It's the about last the great dial-up song. <laughs> <laughs> there's what, what else is on the album? What is, I mean, there's, is Lucky on the first album or is that on the second? Second. second. Yeah. Okay, Lucky's Lucky's amazing. Yeah, and she also does the beat goes on on that album, which I forgot about. Oh, that is oh yeah, great little, song. Her the first of her, of her of her of her great classic covers. Let's yeah. hear uh, the beat goes on if we can. Legit good, actually. Yeah. It has that sort of like primitive radio gods type production, like like nineties nineties mm-hmm. alt rock radio thing going on. Very Smash Mouth. <laughs> a little bit Smash Mouth, a little bit yeah. So we are we just almost went track for track <laughs> through the uh, debut of album of Britney Spears. We actually have a couple tracks left. We might still do it because it's fun, and we're going to still be talking about. Britney Spears' debut and maybe the rise of teen pop and maybe the rest of Britney's career and you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. We were going through the Baby One More Time album just because it, it's super fun. Almost done, but uh, how about uh, from the uh, from the bottom of my broken heart? That is a whack song in my opinion. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> let's... By whack you mean that's the sound it makes when it slaps you across your forehead with its brilliance. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's hear it if we can. Never look back. We said, How was I to know? I miss you so it's also just sort of manifestly funny to come from someone so young. It just really doesn't doesn't match. But the other weird thing is the production was reminding me of that one Chinese democracy track that has sort of vaguely Spanish guitars. Anyway, that, that <laughs> a very a bit of very 1999 sound. It became that became one of the most popular presets of that era. Mm-hmm. Like, that must be why. Yeah, yeah like was, that, every ballad, every yes. pop ballad from the like next two years would sound like that. Yes, "Angel of Mine" by Brandy being a perfect like. Yeah. And did we talk about you drive me crazy? No, but it's amazing. That is a good <laughs> song. So great. So good. The video, one of the most underrated. Britney videos with in, in ter- Adrian Grenier yes. and Melissa Joan Hart. In terms of Britney, like great Britney BFF, like shipping. Yes. You know, like we all we all wanted a lot more of like Melissa and Britney hanging out. They like, were on Sabrina. She Britney appeared on Sabrina. Great Christmas episode. Amazing, <laughs> amazing episode. She taught her a lesson. <laughs> Old Sabrina, you're gonna have to call that. Old yeah. previous Sabrina. It's the only canonical Sabrina. <laughs> we don't recognize the eighth Sabrina around here. Let's hear you drive me crazy. Most people don't know, but it was written by Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's so fascinating is to hear these little production things that were once so ubiquitous and have now just fallen completely out of favor. And you know that someone's going to pick up those things and just mm-hmm. just these little bits of things that were that were just everywhere. But that's a good song. And a couple years later, after 1998 and 2000, uh, Rob, you had a, a, a phoner with Britney. Was that your only Britney interview of your of your life? Uh, it, it it was the first one. It was uh it was, it was one of the first time she talked to Rolling Stone. She was she was one of our people of the year for uh, two thousand. She was the person of the year pretty much every year. Uh, it, it it was a thing where any reason to get Britney on the cover was you know was 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 followed diligently. She was in the back of her limo in Paris. She was eating French fries. She was crying. She was talking a lot about her career. She she really wanted for her goals for two thousand one. She really wanted a vacation. 
She she wanted to. She said, "I want to get you know a castle in Spain on the beach and learn to play guitar and write songs and make an album like you know like the new Jill Scott record uh, and pamper myself." Those those were the words uh, that uh, that she used, and I believed every word she said, of course. Um, mm. And she was really surprised that I liked her new album, her second album, which had just come out, and and. She, she said, you, you like that record? It's completely ridiculous. And I said, I love it. It's got great songs. And we talked for a bit about her version of Satisfaction, which is so brilliant. Yeah. Like, it's a phenomenal second album. <laughs> yeah, I mean, her second album kills, let's face it. I mean, that, that's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's like a real album. That's, mm. you know, that, that, that's up there in the pantheon. She didn't like it, though? She, she thought it wasn't as singer-songwriter as she wanted to do. She wanted to grow. I mean... As, uh, you know, we just heard her sing Cher. Cher was, you know, like her, her model. I mean, what a forward-thinking teenager in 1998 before Believe, you know, like Believe has happened, the big Cher comeback. She's already wanting to be Cher when she grows up, which is a very, like, ahead-of-the-game thing for a teenage girl to be thinking at that mm-hmm. time. In some ways, she sort of she sort of got there in some ways. She, she, she certainly did. Mm-hmm. She But if you watch her on the Mickey Mouse Club, like those clips, you know, on YouTube, there's this phenomenal clip of her on the show singing, If I Could Turn Back Time. And it's like, wow, this is where she learned to sing. That's crazy. But let's hear I I Can't Get No Satisfaction if if we can. I can't get no satisfaction. Produced by Rodney Jerkins, by the way. I didn't realize that. But yeah, the second album is, I mean, it starts with the one-two punch of Oops, I Did It Again and Stronger, which Mm -hmm. is just killer. I always love Stronger. And Oops, I Did It Again, you know, it has the the Titanic bit, which is really something. Oh, yeah. I love that entire, that entire section still remains so strange to me. (laughs) Just like, I remember hearing it for the first time and I was like, this is an interesting choice. And then it's still like, Probably one of my favorite pop moments, like on a song, and then just it remains just like because such it's a, so deranged, it's right? So and it just makes no sense <laughs> in the context of the lyrics. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and then in the video, aren't they in in space or something? And he's yes. and he's presenting her the diamond from Titanic in space yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So that just takes it to like level Z bonkers, like just. I mean, Insanity. but like ninety nine. What else? It's Britney Spears and the Titanic. That's it. That's all that mattered. <laughs> Actually, my me- my memory of the album launch is, uh, and I think I was I was either working on MTV or about to be working on MTV. But she was she did her TRL interview and she took audience questions and some someone asked her about the "I'm not that innocent" line, mm-hmm. and she got really offended, which was really interesting. She's like, "It's just a song." And it's like it, it, it's it's part of that thing you're, you're talking about. It's like it's like tease, 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 pull back. You yeah. know, it's this interesting kind of dichotomy there. Yeah, I think so much of that dichotomy really is what kind of trapped Britney for so long, and something that she consistently tried to break free from, but it was also used against her so often. I think kind of that balancing act of being someone who was genuinely very religious and also genuinely, you know fairly modest just in her like as a kid growing up in her upbringing and then also kind of balancing that with like a lot of expectations from her wanting to be an adult and her wanting to grow up faster than I think people knew how to deal with but yeah I think that was used against her so often for the rest of her career we're talking about some of the the Britney merch that you had yeah yeah there was so much I mean the way that they sold that entire pop canon of that time was so brilliant and really predicted a lot of what (laughs) we got for the rest of the 2000s but yeah I had a lot of like t-shirts 
and I had um, like Britney earrings. I had Britney makeup. Yeah, I was like, I just like anything you could buy. You would go to like they had the IMAX concert films for all of the pop artists then, like the NSYNC IMAX film, the Britney IMAX film, and I went to all those. I had VHS tapes with the making of the videos. God, that's like so a good. brainwashing thing to have a gigantic Britney in front of you, you know? Like, oh, the like some IMAX kind of, screenings yeah. were so good. <laughs> it was really... <laughs> we have the uh, infamous Titanic part queued up, so let's hear that. Britney, before you go, there's something I want you to have. Oh, it's beautiful. But wait a minute, isn't this? Yeah, yes it is. But I thought the old lady dropped it into the ocean in the air. Well, baby, I went down and got it for you. Oh, you shouldn't have. You really shouldn't have. The greatest drop of all time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's right then. What about this thing of if you you know, if you watch the movie Spring Breakers, which I understand there are people who watch that movie like three times a day, like Scarface now. It's like a it's really taken over some people's lives. But the way that Britney's music is used in that movie as sort of in a really complex way as sort of like this symbol of sort of like emptiness and <laughs> moral vacancy and God knows what. What's that all about to you? I mean, I think specifically with the idea of having Selena Gomez in that film, and I think there were so many reflections of the Britney career trajectory in Selena's kind of camp of Disney pop stars and I always felt like that was playing off of that because it was such a big deal that Selena was in a movie like that because at the time she was still building her adult image doing the kind of Britney in the zone era of like trying to become a more mature pop star and kind of owning her own identity and sexuality and just in, t- in music career and so I always thought that was playing really on the idea of having Selena who at that time was just starting to become as big as she is now and it was such a big deal that she was in a movie like that where she was not doing the Disney character where she was not her Wizards of Waverly Place sort of innocent Disney Disney-fied version of herself and I thought that was kind of playing on that her like breaking free of this like moral vacancy and whatever kind of image of what we thought Britney was in the beginning. What lessons are we to draw from what we now know and what Britney was kind of trying to tell you in 2000 that she was in some ways you know, kind of a prisoner of this pop machine that she wasn't doing what she wanted to do, that she was being worked to death, not to death, but, you know, psychological death, that she was an unhappy and, and I guess, an unstable person with with uh, mental health problems and that this all was like this facade that she then tore down by shaving her head and all that. How are we now to listen to her old music in light of that, and then with the additional twist of she came back from the breakdown, shaving her head, and losing custody of her kids, and all that to what seems like a pretty healthy place, but hopefully, how does that affect the way we now look back in fondness at her early career? Do you think? I don't know specifically with her or with musicians in well, general. Well, with her in particular, given that, that we know what happened after. Well, she had a long career and made a lot mm-hmm. of music. I mean, she, you know, a lot of people thought in 1998 that, you know, this was going to be her only hit. She had so many hits over the years from, you know, so many different eras of her career. It's kind of astounding that, like, Baby One More Time, in a way, it was the first record where people predicted that Britney was about to be over. And, 
you know, since then, you know, nobody would have seen that Blackout was on the way. Nobody would have seen that Femme Fatale was on the way. Mm -hmm. Like she had so much music ahead of her, which, you know, even those of us who loved this song and loved this album at the time wouldn't necessarily have seen like how much music that she she had in her. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Britney herself and I think that the general idea of her fans and the people who, you know, even the people who like more peripherally pay attention to her career and her music look back on that with any less fondness or any less sort of sincerity over that entire period of her life. I think even just I saw her at the her sort of East Coast tour of the Vegas residency and seeing that she performs these songs in full. She's reimagining them to fit the idea of what kind of music and image she has now. I think the what happened in the sort of like 2006 era of Britney was really based on this machine of the touring machine on this treating people more like the brands they are than they than people. And I think that was more so than the actual music itself was what happened. I think so. I think at the same time there was all that, you know, there's the infamous uh, what what Vanessa Grigoriadis wrote in her incredible story about Britney's sort of meltdown where she Britney said well, whoever you think I am I'm not that mm-hmm. and just that you know her her determined you know the the Kevin Federline reality show at a lesser level where mm-hmm. she was kind of tearing down her image and trying to be something it's just sort of that like the whole idea that she she obviously for a while grew to hate her 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 image you yeah. know what I mean and 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 just and yeah she wasn't happy with like her second album she wasn't so on some level she wasn't we're enjoying listening to this and she enjoys it now but she wasn't happy making it mm-hmm. so that's what i'm I'm wondering about how does that affect things for you yeah i think i mean i th- think every single sort of teen idol who is trying to break free from whatever image is attached to them when they're 15 16 17 feels that way when they're releasing their music i think with time and with space from it i think she is definitely she seems a lot more probably comfortable with that era of herself and looking back at it and kind of having that nostalgia because it's still so influential and she's also very fortunate in a way that a lot of pop stars who aren't as big of a a name or sort of entity as Britney is herself to have still hit records and be able to make music beyond that era I think Blackout again like we had mentioned that that album came out of a very trying time in her life but also that's become I think canonically her best album for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, we still listen to, you know, California Girls and mm-hmm. I Get Around and Surf in USA knowing everything that Brian Wilson went through. It's not all that different. Artists often like have peaks and valleys in their lives. Mm-hmm. It does affect it, but it does affect for me, at least the way I hear those songs for sure. You know, it, it sometimes deepens it, you know. Or it can work against it or it can it's just I, I feel like we carry the ghosts of all this knowledge. At least I do. I'm very. I, I can be very aware of this. I hear it very differently sometimes. Knowing the biography, you know, it's possible that it could lend. I, I guess what else? I'll say it myself. Since it, it could lend a, a, a certain poignancy to some of this stuff, but at the same time, it's like to go more with what I think the way Rob feels. I'm back with Michael Jackson. Maybe it's because I, I've maybe after hanging out with Paris, I'm like convinced he's, he was innocent and maybe that's not true. I have no idea. But I can now just listen to Michael Jackson with very little baggage attached, which is really interesting. And maybe it just reset after he died as well. I don't know. Rob, I was going to ask you about Britney and Baby One More Time sort of in the context of the 90s. 
and what sort of happened in 98 to sort of, I once wrote, and I have a feeling you disagree with it. Well, I once wrote that the, the cliched version of the nineties, and I'm sure I was just quoting things that people wrote. I was writing this to undermine it, but that the cliched sort of set canon version of the nineties is that the official nineties began around 91, 92 with smells like teen spirit and then ended the moment you heard those notes at the beginning of, of baby one more time, which is sort of true, but it's more complicated than that. How do you see it? I think that's very true. It's definitely like the dawn of a new world. It's definitely where 99 is not 98. Earlier this year when I did like my list of uh, of the greatest songs of 1998, and I, I specifically like had to keep "Baby One More Time" off of it because, you know, even though it technically came out at the end of '98, it's it's the song that kicked off 1999. You could argue it did for the '90s what "Gimme Shelter" did for the '60s, but it was like, yeah, this decade is over, and new, new, more you know, rougher times are ahead. I mean, another thing about that era is is that that was the people paying for music era. That was the peak of the people paying for music era, which absolutely nobody saw any any end in sight. It's The sky was the limit, and it was obvious that 1999 people were going to pay for more music than they did in 98. People were going to pay for even more music in 2000. And, and so every, there was this, nobody resented Britney being around, even if they didn't like the music, because there was so much room for everybody to make a killing. One of the things that happened, I was talking about MTV, but this sort of center of pop culture shifted over to the teens a little bit, you know, and and it was evident in who was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Uh, People were, there are still people who are very angry about the fact that all of a sudden, you know, instead of whoever was on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1998 created or whatever. <laughs> but it, it, instead of whatever <laughs> other terrible act was on the cover of Rolling Stone, then that it was that it was Britney and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And that was our, our friend Joe Levy's thinking in part. They were just reflecting what was going on in the culture. But what, what did you make of that shift? Because obviously there still was rock and there still was edgy hip hop and there still was you know, electronica and all sorts of things, but the center of things, it's like, I'm, I'm, you can't see it, but I'm moving a lens. The lens, (laughs) the lens is moving over to here are these charismatic mainstream teens and this is what we're focusing on now. So what was the, how did people feel about that? What was that all about? It, it, It seemed like there was room for everybody because the market was so huge. And as, you know, as someone who was a pop fan, I thought, great, like at last, you know, after a lot of, you know, really like heavy rock, heavy rap, there's, you know, there's there's a little uh, yin in, in with the yang and the fact that all this stuff was together. And, you know, you watch TRL every afternoon and, you know, there'd be, you know, like the kids say, yeah, you know, like, I'm like, I'm voting for corn and lame biscuit because like basketball boys suck and like oh like i'm voting for christina because britney sucks and like i'm voting for you know in sync and i'm not the backstreet boys and there was that you know like rooting for your you know your faction but they were all there in trl and carson daly like the ultimate like benevolent ringmaster there was the set that all this pop music stuff that was really edgy stuff that was really heavy was thriving side by side and that was an absolutely beautiful thing a thought that just occurred to me which is you know people are talking about Eminem struggling a little bit in the current music world it's like man this, this is a guy who was on TRL then you know and finding his way into that world that was a long ass time ago <laughs> that's you know it's, yeah it's, it's TRL tough. where stars are made like <laughs> but you know it's tough to be thriving in the year 2000, staying next to Carson Daly and then, you know, be competing in a world of Lil Xan, uh, you know, 
18 years later, it's really tough. It, in many ways, it's analogous to when Madonna went on TRL at that time. And of course, she wanted to sit. And Carson Daly said, I'm sorry, Madonna, no, not even you get to sit. Everybody stands in front of the audience. And uh, Madonna couldn't believe that she was making her sit, but that's something she had to do to prove, as she absolutely successfully proved, that she was for real in 1998, 1999. It was like such a booming pop moment. <laughs> and like all these things, it felt like it would never end. I worked on the 28th floor of 1515 Broadway starting in like 2001. Wow. And it was like, you know, it, was, it really felt like being not at the center of the world, but the center of some world. And you knew it was TRL time because from 28 floors up, you could hear the kids screaming mm -hmm. down in the street because they there was so that the kids, I'm trying to even remember how it worked. The kids would gather, in addition to the kids in the studio, there'd be the kids outside just peering up, right? At yeah. the, did you, were you, were you, were you ever in like the studio audience? No, or I watched anything? it every day. You, you watched it every day. I watched it yeah. literally every day. Did and you, I, did you vote? I didn't vote. Okay. Um, but I kind of have a question for you guys, just sort of from our different perspectives of that era and like what, I mean, you mentioned like the voting politics behind it because there was such an idea of these authenticity like the authenticity wars of the bubblegum pop of that era versus you know the m&ms blink 182 they were all making fun of these teen pop acts because they were deemed inauthentic and they were deemed sort of you know manufactured by the labels i mean what what was like the critical consensus on like pe did people enjoy hit me baby one more time do they enjoy like was it was it lauded or was it kind of panned because of the idea that this was not as authentic as the earlier grunge sort of movement from the 90s and what was happening in rock at that time and what was happening with hip hop and what was kind of like, what were people thinking of the, this music? I, I, I think it, it, it was embraced, I think, like largely, like, you know, like critically and, and by musicians and by fans. It was the sense that all this stuff together, you know, like this was a kind of pop that there hadn't been much of. Hanson mm -hmm. was sort of a first taste of it. But uh, when I'm a, a favorite TRL moment, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I remember being in the studio, like uh, when when POD were on, they were like very heavy, very serious, you know, uh, Christian metal. Uh, you know, their song was, you know, State of the Nation. They, mm -hmm. they had, you know, important things to say. And I remember like hanging around the studio and the song that's playing on, on the countdown at the moment is Insync's It's Gonna Be Me. And off camera, they're all singing along really passionately. They love this Insync song. And it was just kind of a beautiful moment. It was a sense that their pop was a place where we went to sort of check out each other's styles. Mm -hmm. So, you know. I think one of the things was, like I was saying, was this issue of craftsmanship mm -hmm. that because Max and the Swedish guys were writing these songs that with different arrangements could have been hits probably in like the 60s or 70s. They were so, that's what Rob means, I think, when he says it's the kind of pop that hadn't been for a long time because it's this classically crafted yeah. pop with, you know, with these great chord changes and, you know, Bands, I, I touched on this earlier, but bands like Fountains of Wayne, you said Travis, but like Fountains of Wayne were covering reverently, really, Baby One More Time, because they were like, this is a good song, like just as a song. So let's, let's hear Fountains of Wayne cover Baby One More Time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby, baby, how was I supposed to know that something wasn't right here? Oh, baby, baby, I should have so I think it was game recognized game sort of and totally. also and, and I think most critics were you know I don't think like 
David Frick, with all due respect, was loving it. But I think I think there was a a, a pretty strong current of of optimism or early mm-hmm. optimism was was yeah. running. So I I think that there were probably the people who would you know who would be like this is pop crap. But even you know like David Brown, our our, our friend and colleague, was at Entertainment Weekly and he loved pop music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I've even told him that like as a young rock fan, I remember being mad that he had given the new Springsteen a bad review and the new Hanson a good review. So <laughs> uh, that that was years earlier before I, before I'd kind of hipped up to the stuff. But but I mean, so that there was people were were more hip than you'd think to to this stuff. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, I don't think anyone thought that Britney's debut as a whole was great though, except you mm-hmm. guys. But <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I think it was just such an interesting time to have such like even within the kind of burgeoning music acts like Eminem and Blink-182 I just think of them like making fun of all of this constantly yeah totally and I think it was it was more like other teens who Mm -hmm. were representing for rock who hated it more anyway this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now apparently we can fill a lot of time talking about Britney we went through a lot of her career and a lot of the rise of teen pop in general in the 90s and uh, we had Rob Sheffield and Britney Smiles in the studio thank you for being here and we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. You can download us as a podcast, subscribe to us as a podcast, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>